Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is F.H. Buckley. Frank Buckley is a foundation professor at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law. He's the author of many books. Recently, we spoke in this podcast channel about his book, An American Secession, and today we're speaking about his new title, just published by Encounter, Curiosity and its 12 Rules for Life. Frank, it's great to have you back in the show, and thank you for your time. Crawford, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. It's great to see you again. And I, I, I'm very curious to speak about this book about curiosity. Um, yeah. it, there, there is, uh, of course, uh, a lot of biographical reference that runs through this. Every every few chapters gives us a glimpse into some part of your um, formation or, or family background. But for those who didn't listen to the previous podcast on the book about American secession, could you remind us a little bit about who you are and perhaps some of the things you've been interested in writing about over the years? Well, I grew up in a small French-Canadian town in Canada, and uh, I'm bilingual, and uh, went to school, as my parents did, at uh, McGill University in Montreal. And for the last 30 years, I've taught law at an American law school uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, across the river from, from Washington. And I bore easily, hence my book. <laughs> very good. Um, one of the um, w- w- one of the very amusing biographical anecdotes that you tell in the book, Frank, um, is your response to your first watching of the Manchurian Candidate, I think, in 1962, where the Frank Sinatra character um, is revealed to have this wall of books, none of which seem to bear any relationship to each other, but all of which together could suggest an extraordinary breadth of mind. Uh, And the reader is certainly struck by that notion as we work through this book, where the range of reference and popular culture through to to classical antiquity, through to the Bible, through to the history of art, is is really just quite extraordinary. Um, So when you say that you identified with the Frank Sinatra character in The Manchurian Candidate, I really do believe you. Your last book was about American secession. This book's about curiosity. What connects these two projects? Absolutely nothing. I mean, like I say, I bore easily, and so one wants to move on. I've done a number of political books, and then I threw up my hands and said, well, right, you know, what's left but secession? And then I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff over the years that uh, didn't hit the cutting floor, and I've sort of kept, and I wanted to write about all sorts of things, uh, the pre-Raphaelites, Gothic cathedrals, Frank Sinatra, for example. Uh, that was the 1962 Manchurian Candidate, the classic one. Came in. Fantastic. And as you say, um, what he does is he gets a bookseller to sell books, send books from random books. And so you get these crazy titles on piracy and Chinese culture and the like. And, uh, you know, uh, no relation, about 10 of them, economics uh, and so on, physics. 
And his superior officer looks at him and promptly orders him into uh, re- prompt retirement or, or suspension of duties because he's obviously having a crack up. So the idea is if you're that old and you have all these disparate uh, interests, there's something somewhat wrong with you because you should be burrowing down. But in the book, I said, you know, I loved this when I was a kid. I saw the movie when I was a kid, and I thought, that's incredible. That's just what I'd like to do. I'd like to move around. And the point is, kids are different from adults. Kids are supposed to be really, really curious. Um, that's the story of, for example, Jack and the Beanstalk. So Jack wanders off with a cow, and he trades the cow for a magic beanstalk. And we're supposed to think, an adult would think this is absolutely stupid, but the point of the, the, the fable is it works out okay for Jack because there's this pot of gold or whatever at the top of the beanstalk. And so young people are supposed to be curious. But what's going on right now is the curiosity DNA is being plucked from them, it seems. And they're supposed to worry about uh, Black Lives Matter or COVID or whatever it might be. And so we're emerging from this horrible year, right? 2020, everything went wrong. And, you know, I I'm, I'm thought as I wrote the book, maybe if I get lucky, the book will come out at a time when we're ready to say it's springtime. Things are great. Go out there, have a good time, enjoy yourself, cast it all off. Uh, I'm not sure if we're there, but I, we should be. Well, the spring has certainly arrived, Frank. So let's hope the other stars align to make this book a, a, a real success. Um, you, you mentioned there that, that you watched The Manchurian Candidate as a younger person and that younger people are, are often much more curious than elder versions of themselves. You've had a distinguished legal career over 30 years. You've written books about politics, culture, uh, with, a, with a, a broad range of reference. And as this book indicates, you certainly have not lost your curiosity. So can can I ask you, what have you done over the last three or four decades to keep that youthful, energetic, um, curious view of the world? Well, I ran a program for judges uh, for a dozen years, and we had a variety of different people, uh, all great scholars. We had a fellow called John Searle, a great philosopher, lecture about Hume, we had Gordon Wood talk about the founders of America, the revolutionary generation. We had people talking about John Stuart Mill. We had people talking about Camus. Uh, it was a, a wonderful program, and I thought, isn't this great? I mean, you know, one has a life like uh, Crawford Gribbon, for example, where you could just do all this crazy, weird stuff, utterly unconnected. And that's kind of the goal of it all, right? The goal is to stay young and fresh and all of that and not become a hidebound old fogey, which you've wonderfully succeeded in, in avoiding, right? And and that should be the goal. Well, we, we have, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful title, isn't it? Curiosity, it's 12 Rules for Life. We've had a number of books recently with this kind of 12 rules vibe. Right, I, I completely ripped off Jordan Peterson. You know, yeah. shame, absolutely <laughs> shameless. But, I, you know, I have no apologies. It's, it's fair game. You know, it's out there. And I could see where Peterson was coming from because I grew up in Canada. I lived there for most of my life. And Canada's great theme, according to Margaret Ott, 
Atwood is survival, right? Survival in a cold, forbidding climate, right? That, you know, which is sort of what Montreal weather is like. And, and so it's perfectly good stuff if you're Canadian or doer or, uh, I don't know, perhaps do what people in Northern Ireland, uh, empathize with this a little bit with, with only the, the calvinists frank only the calvinists, the calvinists for sure right so it, it, you know this appeals to people who are who i guess need a bit of a jolt and you know i looked at that and i thought well th- you know that's all right if you're canadian uh or need that jolt but I encountered a more fun-loving group of people when I moved to the States, and I'd write the book for them. So who is the book actually for? What kind of reader do you have in mind? Um, I guess a person who at the end of 2020 thought, I've had enough of all this doom and gloom stuff, right? Let's try to go back to the way life used to be that is more fun. Let's go back to the time when we could actually safely tell jokes to each other. Um, you know, and, 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 uh, and explore different things, right? Uh, but, you know, right now it's so hard to escape from it. Our escape in the past was things like TV or sports. Well, you, you know, you, you can't get away from it now, right? I mean, in, in sports, for example, it's all politics all the time. And, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, somehow we exported Black Lives Matter to Great Britain. I mean, I don't understand that, but it, it happened. I suppose it's a tribute to the dominant pressure of the United States. Also to, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, to American egotism and narcissism. Right. It's see, not merely are we the greatest country in the world, but if we're evil, we're also the most evil country in the world. Right. N- nobody beats us in anything. Right. And, uh, and, and God knows how it ended up like that in Great Britain. I mean, why you should be paying attention to us. But there it is. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe 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 your listeners will be a little bit bored by all of that. I mean, I'm not suggesting they should tell Black Lives Matter jokes, but I am suggesting that, well, you know, maybe they should turn the dial a little bit and try to find something else out there that's interesting. And there are these interesting stories. And if you think about people you admire, they're they're the people who took risks and took chances and discovered new things. And what prompted them in all cases was curiosity. And that comment takes us directly to some of the chapter titles in the book, Frank, doesn't it? Chapter two, take risks. Uh, chapter three, court uncertainties. Why did you, or rather, how did you come to choose these particular 12 rules, including one that says, don't make rules? Well, you know, I had to get up to 12, right? So I had to be a little creative, right? <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to rip off Jordan Peterson, I got to do it properly. Uh, but, you know, there's obvious stuff. If you're a risk taker, you're going to take risks. Uh, if you're curious, you're going to take risks. And and, uh, and and what that means is you're not always sure how it's going to turn out. I mean, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But the people who were prompted to do curious things took the off-ramp, right? I mean, if you just stay on the road everyone travels on, you're not going to do anything different, right? You'll be stuck in a rut. Right. I mean, the interesting people took the off ramp and then the the path less taken. And sometimes that became a great highway by itself as we followed them. So these were the innovators. So the the, the, um, 
the taking risk chapter begins with that Jack and the Beanstalk story, doesn't it? And in some ways, that that is the kind of emblem of the curiosity you want to encourage. Risk-taking, uncertain endings. Um, I mean, does risk-taking always work? No, it doesn't always work. And the point is, uh, maybe this is Jordan Peterson, but the point is, when it doesn't work, what you should do is dust yourself off, get up, you know, lie and lie down and bleed a while and then get up and fight again, as Sir Andrew Barton said. So that's part of risk taking as well. It's it's, uh, you know, it's it's the virtue of the guy with sufficient mental toughness, not only to take risks, but to to see to persevere when they don't turn out so well. I mean, to say there are risks is to say there's a possibility of failure, maybe a great possibility of failure, but those, those are the only interesting things. Mm. I mean, uh, think about the, the Internet or the high-tech economy. About 25 years back, a fellow called Steve Jobs thought that people might want home computers. Nobody else at the time thought so. IBM didn't think so. And so he launched a company called Apple, and it was so risky that securities regulators in some states uh, in Massachusetts said, we won't permit you to sell shares in your company in our state. You're too risky. Yeah. <laughs> well, had they had Massachusetts residents been able to buy those shares, they'd be much happier today. So that's, you know, that was, so, you know, where were we in, in, in 19, whatever it was, 1977, when it was just starting to launch this? We had no idea if there was a demand for this. We had no idea how to make it. We had no idea, you know, how to ship it, how to advertise it, any of that stuff. And yet it just happened. And and growth in the economy is associated with risk-taking like that. Now, the publisher you're publishing with, uh, Frank, Encounter Books, is well known as the leading conservative uh, publisher probably in America today. And it, it was very striking then when we turned to Chapter 4, that one of the the subsections is called "It's okay to be a rebel." How does yeah. how, how does this idea of rebellion uh, fit with risk taking, but also fit within this broader, somewhat conservative tone that that runs through some of your writing and certainly through uh, the publications? Well, you know, the, the, the rebels today are are conservative folk, right? The conformists are the people who have the signs in their front yards saying "Aid us, no home here," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, the, these are the the virtue signalers who just want to be on the right side of everything. Um, well, you know, being a rebel, I write about Camus. I have a couple of people I keep returning to in the book. One is Pascal, the other is Camus. Um, both students of St. Augustine, both with a rebellious turn to them. In the case of Pascal, as expressed in his provincial letters, where he takes on all that's good and great. And in the case of Camus, who rejects the conformists who became collaborators in World War II. And then at the end of the war, he refuses to join everybody in the left in supporting communism. No. Uh, that was a rebel, and he wrote about rebellion. Hmm. There's a wonderful anecdote in the chapter on creativity, when you describe Dante Gabriel Rossetti's uh, difficult relationship with his wife, who dies, and in her coffin he buries uh, a set of unpublished writings, yeah. which he later attempts to retrieve. It's a wonderful story. 
tell us how this works out and, and also how does this anecdote emblematize some of the bigger themes in that chapter about creativity? Well, I wanted to talk about the pre-Raphaelites. I wanted to talk about creativity in art. I mean, if you're going to talk about curiosity, creativity is part of it. Where would you look for creativity? But in the arts, in writing, poetry, uh, painting. And so I talked about the pre-Raphaelites who were formed in 1848, the year of rebellion. And they revolutionized uh, art for a period in Britain. They were very unpopular with some people until they were taken up by Ruskin. And uh, they were composed of these fascinating people. And one of them is Rossetti, right, who's a poet and, you know, who, who thinks, right, well, I'm doing poetry, but this great new thing is called art, and I'm going to get a part of that. So he becomes a painter and, uh, you know, takes up with a model called Elizabeth Sladell and feels grief and guilt when she dies and buries a book of poetry in her coffin. And all is very well. I mean, he goes back to painting, right? But then he wants to go back to poetry. The only problem is his greatest poems lie in a grave buried in Highgate Cemetery. And so in the most ghoulish act of British history, one that a gentleman would never have done, but then he wasn't a gentleman. He had a grave dug up and the poems retrieved. And uh, it all worked out, except he said, under no circumstances should I ever be buried in that cemetery. <laughs> they were fast, you know, they, they were fascinating people, uh, you know. And I tell, uh, I begin by writing about the growth of the Gothic cathedrals and the nature of the Gothic. And so the figure of John Ruskin figures throughout all of that. Wonderful stuff. You have a chapter as well, uh, Frank, be open to the world. It's one of your 12 rules of curiosity, be open to the world. And obviously at the tail end of this pandemic, um, we've kind of got used to the contemplative life. But you're telling us in this chapter, we're probably not called to the contemplative life. What's wrong with the contemplative life? Oh, well, if it works for you, all the better. But I mean... Uh, I had to write about the desert monks, okay? And the point about the desert monks is these were lives focused on religion uh, about 30 or 40 miles south of Cairo in the most inhospitable climate you can imagine, all alone but for one meal a day. And, uh, and they thought curiosity was a devil, they thought it was the noontime devil come to tempt you from your prayers. So I had to take a look at that. And I didn't want to say anything bad about contemplatives. But I did want to say, look, this is something that's not going to work for the rest of us. So if that noontime devil had a name for us, it would be called curiosity. And it wouldn't be a devil. It would be a smiling God beckoning us to come out and and look at the world. Uh, that's that's how we are. Mm. So you give us, Frank, in this book, 12 rules of life for curiosity. And then there's a couple of, I suppose, um, epilogue type chapters where you, you, you warn us of the dangers of incuriosity. What, what are the dangers of not being sufficiently curious? Well, it's it's not so much a danger as a, as a permanent temptation. We all have a desire to go out and explore the world. 
we also have a countervailing desire to stay home, shut up in our room. I hope we've had enough of that in the last year, but it's there, right? There's something that says, no, don't go out, just, you know, huddle down, you know, pull your blankie over you and all of that. Um, and, and I think we have to recognize that as, as a very human emotion. It's something I think we need to struggle against, but it's there. And, uh, and so I talk about the excessive senses, the excessive sense of the world we might have. Um, I say, for example, that on the subject of noise, Right. Um, getting out to the world involves hearing things, hearing birds chirp and the like, hearing a bit of traffic, all good stuff. But then again, we also want quiet and we have something called an Accela car here in, in DC that goes up to New York. There's a quiet car where you're not allowed to talk on your phone. Everybody tries to get in that. So blessed solitude. We get away from it all. Uh, and I suggest, for example, that our interest in remote hideaways or going to the mountains or beaches, all of that happened in the 19th century, roughly. Before then, if you're going to be a traveler, you wanted to go to the city, you wanted more noise. You came from a quiet place, you went to a noisy place. But after people started living in cities, they wanted to go to beaches, quiet beaches where all you'd hear is the wave. So the desire for a mountain retreat, the desire for beaches was a desire for quiet. And that's when it all began. That's that's when we got beaches. Hmm. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Frank, your interest in Pascal, whose name recurs through this book, doesn't it? As yeah. well as discussion of the Jansenist movement with which he's identified, that crops up again and again. Uh, and I'm very curious about that. What has Pascal done for you to help you think through these issues? There's a kind of curiosity about what other people want, what they like, you know, how you can make them happy. There's another kind of curiosity about yourself and Pascal and the French moralists like La Rochefoucauld, for example, wanted us to think more carefully about our own character, our own souls, our own sins. Um, Pascal said there are only two kinds of people. There are people who are sure they're going to be saved and who really have merited damnation, and the other kind who think that they're sinners and who might have a chance at heaven. So if we really look carefully at it ourselves, that's a kind of curiosity. We'd be better people. Indeed, I make the argument that curiosity is the foundation of morality. And just on that topic of morality, Frank, you also suggest um, in the chapter Knocking on Heaven's Door that there is a possibility, however remotely it may appear to us at the moment, a possibility of a religious revival and return to traditional forms of morality. And I think it's that's the section where you describe how the children of... Um, Regency rakes invent Victorian morality. Right. There's no reason to think it can happen again, you see. Well, anything can happen in the future. I mean, trying to predict the future is very much a mugs game. But in as much as a good many people are younger people are, uh, for various reasons, not happy with the boomers. I wanted to talk about the boomer uh, 
boomer feelings about the subject of death because you know we're we're beginning to see our friends and lovers disappear and as that happens this thought will occur to us that it might happen to us as well and as that happens we might start to think about what happens thereafter right the the four last things you know uh, death judgment heaven hell and that might lead to a religious revival Indeed, I said that religion itself is a response to curiosity. If you don't have any curiosity about what happens after you die, right, then I don't know what kind of religion you have. In the Western tradition, you don't have one. Pascal said he knew people like that. He lived in a very secular age in in France in the mid-17th century. And he said he met many people who weren't interested in religion, and he said they seemed to him to be monsters of incuriosity. Mm. It's quite, an, uh, quite a memorable phrase, isn't it? Well, Frank, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time today talking about this book, Curiosity and its 12 Rules for Life, just published by Encounter uh, this year, 2021. But before we wind up, could you tell us what your next project might be? Well, yes, I have something else, which again will come up with Encounter. It's it's a thought about what might happen to the Republican Party. So this is getting back to politics. And uh, I describe a different kind of Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, of Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower, as the most decent moral party you could imagine as compared to what we've got today. And it seemed to me the the idea of getting of making the Republican Party respectable again might involve returning to the Eisenhower era, right? Because Eisenhower, before the sharp turn to the right with Goldwater, etc., Eisenhower had a very enviable record on things like civil rights, um, you know, on, on the rule of law, on, on a good many issues. The economy was doing fantastically. He was the most popular politician for a decade. Uh, he was a quietly decent fellow who didn't have to raise his voice. So he's my model for what the return would look like. And I called it progressive conservatism, that being a label which would be familiar to people in England or Canada. It's really a return to Dis- a Disraelian kind of conservatism. And in Very fact, I'm starting to see that. They're, they're called red Tories in Canada, and you're starting to see that in Britain. So I think that's the way back. Yes, it's a very interesting uh, movement back towards some kind of center, social centre ground, isn't it? Right. Uh, which pays dividends uh, both in Canada and the UK. Well, Frank, looking forward to seeing that book on uh, the, the new directions for the American Republican Party. And we're really grateful for your time today for coming on to the show to talk about this book, Curiosity and its 12 Rules for Life, just published by Encounter. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you so much, Robert. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm -hmm.